Good evening and welcome. Alan Jones, who usually occupies the eight o'clock slot here on ADH TV, is away this week having some medical issues attended to. So this week you will be getting an extended edition of the Fred Paul Show. And we have a cracking week coming up. There's no shortage of things to talk about this week, some of them amusing, others downright alarming. Firstly though, he never makes it apparent on his show, but my colleague Alan Jones is not in the best of health. He usually needs a walking stick to get around and is often in considerable pain. But he still fronts up to ADH four nights a week when his doctors permit him, and sometimes when they don't, because while his body might not be what it used to be, his mind remains as sharp as a razor. Few people in Australia know more about how this nation is run than Alan does, and he is deeply concerned about the self-destructive road down which we have already travelled way too far. He knows that you, his loyal listeners and viewers, share that feeling, especially regarding what he has been for years calling the National Economic Suicide Note, the absurd plan by big government and other vested interests to demolish our cheap energy infrastructure and replace it with expensive, unreliable industry destroying renewables. How the Labor Party has evolved to embrace this insanity is a mystery. I'll be speaking to Gary Johns, a minister in the Paul Keating Labor government of the mid-90s about that later. But that's not the only way Australia has changed. We used to be a free and prosperous country, filled with people who were grateful for having been born or allowed to migrate here, and who wanted to work hard so that it was even better for the next generation. These days, more and more Australians are defined as much by a handout mentality as they are for their work ethic, which will eventually tear our social fabric apart. We used to be a funny lot too, endearing ourselves to the world with the irreverence and disrespect for authority that only a country that grew from a prison colony could be proud of. One of the foundations that enabled us to be so irreverent was free speech which unlike the United States was not formally written into our constitution, but was instead deeply embedded in our culture. We used to have a collective bullshit radar that seldom failed us. That was until 2020, when this previously infallible radar went on the fritz for the better part of two years. Many of us are now looking back on those two years and wondering, how the hell it all happened. The facts are now becoming frighteningly undeniable. We grew our national debt by more than $100 billion, mostly so healthy people could sit at home doing nothing for two years to protect them from a virus that was never a serious threat to them. We locked Australians out of their own country, prevented those at home from going overseas, and locked down state borders, separating families, even at times of medical emergency and death. But it's the vaccines that are emerging as the most destructive phenomenon of the COVID pandemic. The voices urging people to get jabbed dominated politics and the media. Here's just a sample of them. Because the virus will be here for a long time and your only protection against it is being vaccinated. 
Shout out to please go and get your children vaccinated. School is starting on Monday. We have 35.94% um, of our five to 11 year olds that have had one dose. I would like to see that up a bit more. Say pro-persuasion, stuff it, shove it. We are absolutely gonna make sure as many Territorians as possible are vaccinated. That is our best protection against this thing. And if you look at the Doty modeling that's only come out since, that says if you double dose 80 in remote communities, five and up, I think you'll see our vaccine mandate is absolutely crucial to protecting lives, particularly Aboriginal lives. And I will never back away from supporting vaccines. And anyone out there who comes for the mandate, you are anti-vax. This is our shot to help save lives. And to bring Australians home. Our shot to get everyone together for Christmas. Well, Channel 9 has another shot now at defending a lawsuit from AFL commentator Warren Treadray, who was sacked for not being jabbed and last week lodged a suit for unfair dismissal, claiming a whopping $5.7 million in lost earnings. The evidence supporting Channel 9's case that the vaccines were essential to keep staff safe is disappearing by the day. And Treadray's case, if successful, will undoubtedly open the floodgates. There must be a few corporate and government executives who are now sweating about their decisions to sack people for reasons that were never any of their damn business. American podcast superstar and co-founder of the Daily Wire publishing group, Ben Shapiro, was a leading opponent of vaccine mandates, but still accepted the data claiming that the vaccines stopped people spreading the virus, saying it was a matter of personal choice. Two weeks ago, a Pfizer executive admitted that the data was wrong, that the vaccine had not been tested to prevent the spread, which might explain why it doesn't. That elicited this response from Shapiro. It is now perfectly clear that we were lied to. That we were lied to and we were lied to at a very high level from very, very early on by both the vaccine companies in terms of the ability of the vaccine to prevent transmission. And we were also lied to by our politicians who apparently knew better. And they just kept lying. And this is, it makes me really, really angry to be lied to by these people especially because these people then continue to claim their expertise. They continue to claim that we should believe them on everything. And then they whine that people don't believe the science. You never presented science. Instead, you presented a platonic lie about what exactly was going to happen if people took the vax. It was going to die down. There would be no more transmission. And what's more, it turns out the Biden White House knew this and they promoted the lie anyway. So we were lied to about their efficacy. But what about the adverse reactions, such as myocarditis, pericarditis, Bell's palsy and other heart conditions. This is where the media has lost its credibility entirely. Because while they were naive to accept that the lockdowns and vaccines were necessary, they are being deliberately negligent, to put it politely, to ignore the undeniable and devastating adverse reactions to the experimental drugs we were all coerced into taking. You might have heard me mention the Instagram account Jab Injuries Australia a couple of months ago. It's a roll call of heartbreaking stories from ordinary Australians of all ages and all backgrounds who did what they were told, got jabbed and are now paying an awful price. If indeed they're still alive. 
The people behind the account have now produced 180,000 copies of a booklet detailing some of these stories, which are now being distributed around the country so that people are informed about the risk of the vaccines. Because with a few noble exceptions, the media isn't telling them. The evidence is piling up. The Therapeutic Goods Association says there have been more than 135,000 adverse reactions to the vaccines up to August this year. That is more than all the adverse reactions to all the vaccines administered in Australia since records began in 1971. The federal government last week set aside $77 million for vaccine injury payouts. Absurdly, that is $77 million to cover for a vaccine the government itself pushed onto citizens. Total deaths in Australia were up by 13% in the first six months of this year. Two years ago, the media were preoccupied with attributing predictable deaths, mostly of elderly people, to a virus. But now, when healthy young people die of heart attacks, the media's all, nothing to see here, folks. Which brings me back to free speech. This is one of the most precious principles we will ever inherit. Just because it's not explicitly written into our constitution doesn't mean we shouldn't treasure it as a gift from people who, in some cases, died defending it. Too few people in government, and sad to say, the media itself, fail to understand how easily a society, even one as carefree as Australia, can slip into totalitarianism when people accept being told to shut up and take orders. The reassuring news this week is that Twitter, once a censorious cesspit of leftist finger-waggers, is now being run by a free speech evangelist, Elon Musk. While the COVID experience caused widespread anguish, it's heartening to have a glance at the audacity and wit that Musk is already bringing to Twitter. We'll do that later in the show. My first guest tonight is Gary Johns, whose new book, the Burden of Culture is a hand grenade lobbed at the self-interested inner-city elitists cashing in on the $40 billion Aboriginal industry. Indeed, the book's subtitle is How to Dismantle the Aboriginal Industry and Give Hope to Its Victims. Johns is very clear that it is the people who have the ear of government, not white Australia, who are to blame for the appalling, often third world conditions in which some Indigenous people live. Johns is a former Labor politician elected for the Queensland seat of Petrie in 1987 under the Bob Hawke government, rising to Special Minister of State under Paul Keating in 93, and losing Petrie in the John Howard Coalition landslide of 96. He immediately became disenchanted with Labor, but not his principles of a fair go for all Australians. He became a, se a senior fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs in 1997, a, a centre-right think tank, and then had various consulting and academic positions. He was president of the Benelong Society, which tried to counter the misconceptions about black and white relations in Australia and sought practical solutions for Indigenous problems. The Bennelong Society only survived for 10 years before being wound up in 2011. But the industry it opposed, the Aboriginal industry, has since gone from strength to strength. 
Johns was awarded a PhD for political science in 2001, and in 2017, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's government appointed him Commissioner of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit not Commission. He's written nine books since 2001, and as I said, the latest is quite the hand grenade. I'm pleased to say he joins me now. Gary, welcome. Thanks indeed, Fred. First, Gary, you make it very clear in the book that the Aboriginal industry, not white racism, is to blame for Aboriginal deprivation and disadvantage. What does the Aboriginal industry actually offer Indigenous people? It offers themselves uh, a premier place at the table with Prime Ministers and Premiers. It offers Aboriginal people who haven't escaped from the worst aspects of their culture Nothing, absolutely nothing. So, look, the thesis is quite simple. About 80% of Aboriginal people are doing about as well as every other Australian. So they haven't read the script, they've got on with life, they've adapted to the modern world, they are integrated, what their private beliefs are, etc. and none of my business. This is about public policy. But the last, let's say, 20% who are more likely to look like Aboriginal, live under more or less traditional culture and certainly be in remote uh, places, discrete Aboriginal communities, are dying. They're in desperate trouble, but they, of course, are the poster children of the industry. They need those faces and that sort of reference to culture and dance and all the rest of it, but that's not a life. Well, what would a liberal democracy offer these people? You say they're not being offered a life by the Aboriginal industry. What does the rest of Australian society, liberal and free and prosperous that it is, offer them instead? A different contract. We know that you have to understand the value of creating wealth, indeed of creating value. So all the disciplines of going to school, getting a decent education, learning to read and write and speak English, and getting a job and paying taxes and bringing up a family. All of the basics are the only things you need. They're really quite simple. They're the only things you need to have a good chance in a liberal democracy. These are not being flat out denied by the industry, but the assumption is, and the learning of Aboriginal people in remote communities I don't need that. I don't need to play by the rules of the white man. So, in fact, what, what we find in the last 30, 40 years is a desire to opt out. Up until 1967, and with 1967, 92% of Australians said welcome on the basis of equality to, equality to Aboriginal people. But almost at that moment, an Aboriginal elite said, wow, we're special. Our culture is more important than anyone else's. And you, poor remote Aborigines, have to go and live it while we in Sydney and Melbourne can play up and make heroes of ourselves. And $33 billion a year later, we've still got this supposed gap between how Aborigines do and the rest of society. But that's not the gap. The gap is between 20% of Aborigines and all other Aborigines and all other Australians. It's this, may I call it, a remnant group who haven't adapted, haven't found a pathway into the Liberal society. That's what I'm addressing. 
Well, one of the things we hear a lot about these days is the term First Nations or Aboriginal Nations. But you say, this is one of the better quotes from the book, and I, I highly recommend the book to all the viewers because it's uh, filled with excellent research and impeccable opinions. But here's a quote from it. Quote, to label Aboriginal clans First Nations is a cruel hoax. Many are barely families, unquote. What's the technical difference between a family and a nation? And why do you call it a cruel hoax? Well, there, uh, the technical difference is uh, about a thousand years of history. You know? We, that is, those who live in nation states, know that it is one of the greatest creations of mankind because behind the walls of a nation state, you have an agreement to have protection by the state from external invaders and, of course, a taxation system and a rule of law and and so on and so forth, that basically keeps you safe. In uh, tribal society, nothing much kept you safe. You were simply, uh, you could bump into the next group wandering across the desert and you would have to negotiate very quickly or you would be killed. Uh, we had this dream that Aboriginal society was somehow peaceful. It was not. Uh, they would have made colonialists, except they didn't have sufficient advancement to actually take over another tribe. Um, they didn't have a surplus, so you could have two blokes standing guard while the others hunted, you know? They didn't even get to that level of sophistication. So the 50,000 years where nothing much developed in terms of how you manage people beyond the really crude elements of harsh disciplines and sorcery. And with great respect, uh, all of our society started that way, but only those in Northern Europe, you know, beginning a thousand years ago, started to build social institutions that would eventually, through much blood and, 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 and invasions and all the rest of it, but eventually, would build nation states. Now, Aborigines have never built nation states. They can never build nation states. But thank God for them, they live in a nation state, even though it was, if you like, forced upon them. And 80% of Aborigines welcome it. Well, that's a very good point. A lot of people would misinterpret that as a, as a, as a statement of opinion, but it's a statement of fact that Aborigines didn't develop to, uh, you know, the same standard of civilization uh, as, as those that colonized the continent in the 18th century. Um, but in fact, they were lucky that it was the British and we've built this free and prosperous country ever since. But one of the things that's happening now is that a lot of people are holding out their hands for the largesse that the federal government is spending on this industry. And some of them aren't even Aboriginals. I've got a clip from Insight on SBS, which ran just last week. Here's the clip. This, this increase in um, fake Aborigines coming into the organisation, and some of those organisations only have membership of about 40 or 50. You could have these people who, get, who tick the box and get rubber stamped. They're going through the system and are being allowed to identify 
uh, they concern take over a lot of the organisations and it's a $40 billion industry. And of course, people are uh, being remunerated very handsomely to, to hold a lot of senior positions. And Gary, there's fake Aborigines occupying this $40 billion industry. Shouldn't the government be stamping out this type of corruption instead of just blindly funding it? Well, Fred, if you go down that path, it's going to be tears at bedtime. The better path is to say, you should receive benefits on the basis of need and we just forget whether you are an Aboriginal or not. So what we're seeing is the development here of an internal war between groups of people who claim to be Aboriginal and the white society has never wanted, well, in the last 50 years, has never wanted to measure so that all of the government departments I've ever spoken to, state and federal, never want to actually test the credibility of a claim that they are Aboriginal. And we know that it's rorted. All I'm saying is, let's not go down a path where we prove who is and is not. It could be very nasty. Better to say, in fact, let's set a target. By 2030, no program in Australia should be race-based. That's fair enough. I mean, we're, we're not a racist country. Well, here's, a, here's, a, here's another statistic that explains why the problem is so entrenched. 35% of all Australian kids born in 2018 were born to unmarried mums. Of those, in 4% of cases, the dad wasn't involved. Now, the figure skyrockets when it comes to Indigenous kids. So in, with Indigenous kids in 2018, uh, born in 2018, 87% of them had unmarried mums. And of those, 22% the dad wasn't involved. Gary, this is a recipe for disaster. It is. It's, it's a good insight into the breakdown of Aboriginal society. Uh, those figures come from the Northern Territory. So if you're looking at New South Wales people of Aboriginal descent, they're a lot healthier. They have integrated, there's less family breakdown. So we're seeing among the supposed you know, real Aborigines, those sitting in the Territory of Northern Australia, the greatest strife, the breakdown in families. That's why people are getting into trouble and going to jail. That's why women are being beaten. That's why... Children are suiciding. That's why they're on the drug, on drugs. And what's happened is there's a new contract out in remote Australia, and it's that Aborigines are saying, I don't have to play by your rules. But when they don't, it kills them because they've not learned to adapt to our, our being all Australians, our society. And if you don't know the rules, you will fail. Well, speaking of the rules, the, the, the government, the federal government, wants a new voice to parliament embedded into our constitution so that the, the, uh, the Aboriginal industry can tell us what the rules are. Now, there's another very good quote in your book, which says, quote, giving a greater voice to a minority which is not ever likely to recommend anything other than more power and money to itself is a bad idea, unquote. So the voice will only make a bad situation worse. Is that right, Gary? Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you give a dependent person, let's say, a second vote, a second voice, they will vote for more dependents. They will say, just give me more money and go away. And that's really the constant dialogue that's happening in remote and regional Australia today, which is just give me money. And we know that when we give someone money, 
without a pathway out of the horrible world in which they live, it will simply intensify their needs. They'll be worse off. There'll be more grog, alcohol, drugs, etc., etc. Now, why the hell we keep doing this, I don't know. And except to say that it must be in the interest of someone to keep doing this. Someone sitting at the top, who's the you know the top Aboriginal, says. I know the solution, and they sit on lots of boards and lots of committees and make pretty good money, and they are listened to, and they always give the wrong answer. Because they don't do one thing. Look in the mirror and say, what was your pathway? How did you make it into the modern society? It's self-reflection that Aboriginal leaders need. Well, the talking just before you go, Gary, because uh, we've run out of time. But um, let's just talk about where this message really does come from. I mean, it does certainly does come from inside the Aboriginal industry, but it's also coming from the Labor Party, which is the party you served under under great prime ministers Hawke and Keating. How did those governments differ from the Labor governments led by Rudd Gillard and now Anthony Albanese? Oh, well, um, they're far more professional, I think, and somewhat less ideological. But I must say on Aboriginal issues, they weren't much better. Uh, they, they, were, they were driven by the heart and not by the head. They didn't take into account the actual lived, ex lived experience. The dominant relationship between black and white in Australia has been one of integration. Intermarriage happened from almost the beginning. So you can't pass a rule to stop people from, you know, loving each other. So most Aborigines have married into our society, if you like, and I'm not suggesting that's the only path at all, but I'm, but I'm saying the real theme in Australian race relations has been a good one. It's been one of integration, intermarriage, and we should celebrate that, but you never ever hear that from an Aboriginal leader. It's as if we hate each other. Clearly we don't. We're mostly intermarried. There must have been love somewhere. Well, that's a great point to end on. How anyone could be vilified for holding an opinion like that, Gary, is beyond me. I hope your book sells extremely well. And thanks for your time. Thanks indeed, Fred. That's former Labor MP Gary Johns, whose new book, The Burden of Culture, thoroughly explains how the Aboriginal industry is keeping some Indigenous people in appalling deprivation and costing Australians billions of dollars. You can buy it by going to quadrant.org.au. For those of you who haven't watched my show before, every night I have a Woke Watch segment where I have a lighthearted crack at the amusing side of the wokeness that is infecting almost every part of our society. It's light relief from the usual despairing topics like the decline of Western civilization, the rebirth of paganism and the threat of nuclear war in Europe. Well, I'm pleased to say that tonight's Woke Watch is an extended version because it is an absolute doozy. It's the response from the left to the takeover of Twitter by free speech crusader Elon Musk. One of Musk's first tweets after buying the company was simply to post this, the bird is freed. Naturally, this caused leftists' heads to explode. 
quote, it's like the gates of hell opened on this site, unquote. Washington Post journalist Taylor Lorenz told her 340,000 followers. The New York Times declared that, quote, advertisers and misinformation, misinformation researchers denounced the potential for a surge in toxic content and falsehoods on the platform, unquote. Curiously, the Times didn't say exactly who these advertisers or misinformation researchers were. Musk fired a bunch of executives who had previously been responsible for widespread censorship, including executive Parag Agrawal, chief finance officer Ned Segal, and legal affairs and policy chief Vijaya Gadi, who was reportedly the person who made the call to ban former United States President Donald Trump from the platform. Don't feel too bad about Gardy though. She earned a salary of $17 million last year alone from Twitter. One senior staff member Musk has not fired is Yoel Roth, who rejoices in the title of head of safety and integrity. He posted a tweet yesterday saying that, quote, Twitter's policies haven't changed. Hateful content has no place here. And we're taking steps to put a stop to an organized effort to make people think we have, unquote. Well, some of that so-called hateful content might have been coming from his own boss, Elon Musk, who posted, then deleted, a wild conspiracy theory about the violent attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of senior Democrat politician Nancy Pelosi. The circumstances of that attack inside the Pelosi home in San Francisco are strange, to say the least, and are yet to be fully explained. Musk was simply repeating what most ordinary, which is to say non-woke, people thought about the incident, that there were reasons to be suspicious about it. It's a sign of Musk's intentions to loosen up the platform, even for people like Yoel Roth, who he said, quote, has high integrity, and we are all entitled to our political beliefs, unquote. Well, amen to that. The woke blue check Twitter users were as busy as usual today. Some of them had said that they were going to quit the site, but instead they were out out complaining that they were being exposed to exposing, expo opposing ideas that until then had been banned from the site. Pity them. Donald Trump once said that being on Twitter was like owning a newspaper without having to take the financial losses. Elon Musk might go one better and make Twitter a place where all reasonable ideas are welcome to be debated and he can turn a profit in the process. You know, like the mainstream media used to be like. Well, after months of lurking in the shadows, opposition leader Peter Dutton was finally forced to pin his colors to the mast when he delivered his budget reply speech last week. My next guest, Queensland law academic James Allen, is one of the nation's leading conservative critics of the Liberal Party, and he was both surprised and impressed by Dutton's speech. Here's a key quote from the speech regarding the crisis now being felt in Europe. Their electricity and gas bills are spiralling out of control. Countries are rationing power. And not just because of the invasion of Ukraine, 
but because governments in several countries in recent years have made catastrophic energy decisions. They've turned off the secure supply of electricity and gas before the technology and system are ready for new renewable energy. Now, despite those warnings and lesser warnings, this Labor government is following in the footsteps of those countries. So the Labor government is going to do to Australia what is already happening in Europe, which is what we've been saying for months here on ADH TV. Let's bring in James to see if Peter Dutton went far enough in that budget reply speech. James, welcome. Hi, Fred. How are you? Good. So what did you think? Did it go far enough, James? I was pleasantly surprised to find out that Peter Dutton was in fact alive. So that was a nice, uh, <laughs> nice to see he's actually not. Uh, look, it was my wife was very impressed. I was pretty impressed. He, you know, for me, I'd like the, the Liberals just to come out and say net zero is not going to work. It's a terrible idea. The problem, I think, at core is that we've had at least since uh, Mr. Abbott was defenestrated, we've had a we had a Liberal government that was almost as keen on all this stuff as, uh, you know, there's massive subsidies to renewables hidden from the view, which is basically being picked up by the general taxpayer. And the whole system doesn't work without baseload power. The costs are skyrocketing. In Europe, you're at a stage now where the, in Germany, they're, they're knocking down wind farms to reopen coal mines. I mean, it's really bleak over there. And we seem to be the most, it's almost like a religion here. And many, many liberals are as, as sort of caught up in the mania as the labor here. I mean, the, at the state level, they're just hopeless, the liberal parties around the country. So Peter Dutton might be as good as it gets, but why couldn't he just, I, if, he, if he wouldn't come out and say we're against net zero, we're, we're against net zero, how about saying we are going to push forward on um, nuclear if you vote for us? And then, you know, it's a little bit of humming and hawing. But within that context, look, we're going to be in for some big problems Get your position out to the public as soon as possible. It's the same as the COVID. If the Liberals had to come out and said we're against this despotism, they would be walking at home in all the elections now. Yeah, well, let's, look at let's the get US, to, the sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. Let's get to COVID yeah. in a minute because you wrote an excellent piece about that in the uh, in the Spectator, which I want to look into at length later. But I noticed that even the Guardian couldn't spin. Uh, this this uh, budget reply speech by Peter Dutton to make it sound like a denial of climate change because essentially the effect on ordinary people is just impossible to deny. This must be, you know, the government is admitting energy prices are going to rise. So even the Guardian has to get on board. This should make Dutton's yeah. job one of the easiest in the country right now, shouldn't it? Come, come out. I mean, anyone who believed at the last election that your power bills were going to go down $275, frankly, uh, really wasn't following what was happening around the world. There was no chance that was ever going to happen. And I think Labor was pretty cynical about it because I don't think they could have believed it either. Yeah, well, I mean, you, so, you're in I the... Mean, I mean, he... he go on. Sorry, he has a lot to work with, Dutton, and he, he did... A, pretty good job and he made himself seem sort of reasonable but if your goal is to win over the guardian you're 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 approaching the elections the wrong way who cares what the guardian thinks of you they they don't like anybody who's you know to the right of paul keating so yeah i mean basically forget it well i mean you mentioned it earlier this this case of the german wind farm being dug up so the uh, germans can get to the coal underneath it 
You know, this is symbolism that ordinary politicians should have a lot of fun with, really, shouldn't they? Well, they should. I mean, one of the things I was done by, in, in many countries, they mothballed uh, coal-fired power plants. Here we blew them up because the green zealots were afraid that someday in the future we might need to reactivate them. I mean, why would you ever let something be blowing up unless, you know, it's decrepit. Maybe it was decrepit. I don't know. But uh, you would at least think that for the next five years you mothball the thing. So it's, there's a lot of sort of pseudo-religious attitudes to this in the context where Australia makes no difference to the world at all. You know, we could go back to the Stone Age tomorrow, and we may be on our way there, but we could go back to the Stone Age tomorrow, and we don't make any difference at all. It's statistically zero to the rate of increase of the temperature. So again, it's sort of this religious-like thinking, and it's at the cost of the poor and future prospects for the young and the wealthy, you know, people living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, they can they have the money. They'll they'll be fine no matter what. Well, so, I, I mean, I object on the road. I wish I wish a few more people in the sort of coalition were like Matt Canavan instead of these sort of people who are afraid of the Simon Birmingham's in the party. They don't want to put them off. It's a bad strategy politically, and it's just wrong in terms of uh, how to approach the cost-benefit analysis. So, you know, certainly Dutton is a huge improvement on Morrison. That's yeah. not saying anything, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, I noticed uh, conspicuously the broadcast from uh, Parliament House cut to uh, Morrison a, a couple of times, and he he looked. He almost looked bored, actually. I mean, after having led the company into this, uh, the country into this mess, uh, he was strangely detached well, I mean, by it you, all. Well, you'd be, you'd, yeah, you'd be bored too, Fred, if you've gone from being secretly the minister of seven ministries <laughs> and the prime minister, you know, to just being a backbencher. It's a little bit boring. Well, let's talk about how Dutton compared his. That's right. Well, uh, let's talk about how Dutton compares to him, actually. What did you make of his style? You watched the whole speech. I mean, Dutton came across as a kind I, I of a likable bloke. I watched most of it. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched most of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I thought he was pretty good, mm -hmm. you know, and if he was setting out to get the women's vote, my wife thought he was excellent. I, You know, I'm a little more critical of the libs for having no backbone, but, you know, I think he, he was measured... Some of the personal anecdotes were good. Um, I can't stand the sort of big spending Keynesian economics. I think it's wrong. I think, you know, high debt, high spending, high taxing, print money uh, was always a loser strategy that you create an economy where borrowers do well and the sort of old fashioned thrifty Protestant values of working hard and saving they go out the window. You're just a mug in that sort of, at those policy settings, you're a mug if you actually try to save and pay off. And, and so in the long term, it's, it's really bad. And we have to be honest, the coalition under Frydenberg and the treasurers before him were as guilty as, of caving into the sort of treasury orthodoxy as anyone else. So we've got to get out of that. We've got to start paying off money, get our sort of, oh, well, who knows when we're ever going to see a surplus with these people. But, uh, even when you do hear noises about it, it's all an accounting trick, really. We've got to stop spending so much. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because that was somewhat uh, of, the, of the topic of the piece you wrote for The Spectator last week. Now, you, James, are well known for being uh, angry about the response by the supposedly conservative governments around the world to the COVID virus. But uh, you, you were told by one reader in The Spectator that you weren't actually angry enough. Can you elaborate on that? 
Yes, well, I did get a I did get a note from a very well connected former liberal uh, who said I wasn't angry enough, and that effectively we have sacrificed a whole generation of children uh, for effectively nothing. As the results come in, the data comes in. Lockdowns really effectively did nothing. We have higher cumulative excess deaths in this country than Sweden. I mean, an excess deaths take all deaths. They look at you know your five year average before. The pandemic and they know how many deaths you can expect and so there's this attempt to just focus on covid deaths and nobody knows how the attribution went because there was a lot of people dying with covid and it was and not and that's distinct from because of covid you know in, in britain at one point if you had covid and were hit by a bus that counted as a covid death and and so you know a lot of people went into the hospital flying with some other disease and they caught covid there and so it's really hard to disaggregate all these deaths, but excess deaths you can't gain. You know how many people you expect your country to die, and we have really bad excess deaths right now. Well, they were and up so 13, just, just to be clear, they were up 13% for the first six months of this year. So go on. Right. Yeah, so you're right. So lockdowns are killing lots of people. So suicides are up, alcoholism's up. You know, we, we have destroyed the lives of a generation of young, poor people. The, you know, the wealthy and the middle class had parents who could stay at home. They'll be fine, as they always are. But the poor hammered. If you look at the school results around the world, or here in Australia, you know, they've lost at least a year or more of reading. We well, let's just, let, let, let's just elaborate on that, James, because today the news came out that year nine boys in NAPLAN their reading levels are lower than any at any time since NAPLAN testing began. You'd have to attribute that to to, COVID, to the COVID lockdown, wouldn't you? Largely, not not exclusively. I, I tend to agree with uh, Mr. Donnelly that uh, the school curriculum is terrible for boys. It's run by sort of touchy-feely women, feminists. So the kind of books that boys want to read, you're not getting. Um, and so to some, and I don't think the way you, that we're actually teaching, the kind of way that works, where you have a teacher at the front and everyone looking at the teacher and you've got a little bit of discipline, you know, at the university level, students hate it when you break them up into small groups and you have them talk among themselves. Look, the students don't want to talk to other students who know nothing. <laughs> I mean, what's the point of that? And that's how the educational establishment works. They spend half their day coming up with new jargon, you know, so you don't call them students, you call them learners. And, <laughs> you know, pathways to achievement. It's just all vomit-inducing stuff, to be honest. So that's a big problem. But clearly COVID was a huge problem as well. And, you know, we literally, these people who ran the fear porn journalist press and who were who were making out COVID to be, which never really plausibly had an infection fatality rate getting anywhere near 1%, never. You know, these models were useless. The data was always clear right from the, the diamond princess. We had a pretty good idea back then, and so they they the have, ruby princess you, mean. you know ruined the yeah. ruined the economy ruined young people's lives, they've destroyed the small business sector. These are all natural right of center voters. Why why would the small business sector who have been massively destroyed want to support the liberals? And you were <laughs> it's saying really, this. It's a, Yep, you were saying this right from the start. And now in your latest piece, you've said, "quote Admit this is your advice to politicians." Quote, admit you were shockingly wrong, give a proper heartfelt apology, and many of us can move on. We'll be angry still, but we'll move on. James, how likely is that to happen? 
Well, I don't know. The pro- I mean, if you look in the U.S. again, all of the sort of uh, nominees for the Republican Party, the new ones, they're not tainted by lockdowns. <laughs> they didn't get through the nomination process. And so I think we're going to see both houses fall to the Republicans and you have this new intake. Now, I don't want to wait for a new intake for the coalition to win again, because that's going to be a few election losses. So it's true. I mean, everyone in cabinet from the, you know, the ones we like, we, Dutton, Angus Taylor, where were they? Why didn't they? They always had the option of, of uh, you know, leaving, leaving cabinet and saying this is just too much thuggery. As I said in my article, the entire Human Rights Commission, all the top commissioners were appointed by the coalition. Not a peep. Not yeah. a whisper during the sort of what Lord Sumption called the worst 300, you know, the worst inroads on our civil liberties for 300 years. Nothing. Yeah. You know, if they find a, a room at a university where three kids wander and it's supposed to be for Aboriginals only, they'll bring the weight of the state, the administrative state to bear on these kids. But they can't find a single thing to criticize about police you know, roughing up pregnant women or smashing people in the head or irrational rules that were crazy and, yeah, well, and, they, and thuggish. They should, they should change the name of it to, to the Australian Woke Rights Commission, I think. Trust me, as soon as there's something the Guardian cares about, the uh, Human Rights Commission will be all over it. Well, we've you had can a, count on that. You Fred. can't absolutely. Well, yeah. we've had a good example set though by the new premier in Alberta, Danielle Smith. She's actually apologised on behalf of her predecessors. That is for excluding the unvaccinated from general society, and she's more popular than ever. So it can be done. Well, yes, but you know. You won't you won't fit in in the inner city Sydney when you go to the wine bar because people will think you're anti-vax. You're not anti-vax when you say all of the old-fashioned vaccines they stop you overwhelmingly from getting it. So rubella or chicken pox or whatever. Um, this vaccine, which I my wife and I took the first two shots of AstraZeneca, I'm not going to get any more because the data is now pretty clear that if you're under 70, and this is Professor Gupta at Oxford said, you know, if you're under 60, there's no point in getting it. And, you know, we had this ram down our throats and it's, it's hard to trust the elite uh, expert class. They've gotten so much wrong in the last two years. Why would you trust these people? And their first reaction when people question them is to silence you and censor you. They don't say, OK, let's look at the data. You know, science is about an interplay between views where you're trying to you know, see which views stand up in the mind independent world of, you know, double blind testing and that exactly. sort of thing. Well, not it's just not, science, not just science, but liberal democracy. It's the contest of ideas. But well, the, speaking the of, attitude of so many people, yeah. the attitude of so many people today seems to be just silence them, shut yeah. them down by big tech or call them names or point fingers at them. You know, and this was the journalist class. They didn't, they weren't curious. They didn't investigate. And this was true of Sky News. It was true of most of the Australian with notable exceptions like Steve Watterson and Adam Creighton and a few others. Yeah, Chris Kenny. Chris Kenny was good on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Jones was great. But yep. by and large, disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move, just quickly move to Brazil. We've only got, got a couple of minutes left. The, Brazil has just elected or re-elected Lula da Silva, a communist. Which way is this going to go, do you think, James? Well, as a communist, I'm surprised he doesn't apply to be on Boris Johnson's old SAGE committee because he actually had a communist <laughs> advising him. So uh, there might be an opening on that soon. Um, it was a very close election, right? Just uh, basically 51-49 or just under 51. 
So uh, Bolsonaro or whatever his name is did surprisingly well. Uh, yeah, it's a bit worrying, South America. You can see in Chile they tried to rewrite the Constitution in a basically way that the Communist Party there liked it. At least in the referenda, in the referendum there it lost. One of the great things about Australia is we can't change our constitution without a referendum where everyone gets a vote. If we had a Canadian-style constitution where it was up to the politicians, we would be a republic. We'd have a voice already in there. You know, the only thing that puts a limit on these people is the fact we all get a vote. And that's another thing about Doug. He better come out soon against the voice because there are going to be an awful lot of angry people. He's just humming and hawing too much. Yeah, You know, this is a principle-based thing. There's no way you should have a race-based distinction uh, in an Australian constitution for how, how many sayings you get, how many votes you get, how much influence you have. So I'm expecting him to come out against that soon. Well, and just quickly before you go, because I want to get your expert opinion on this, but uh, speaking of, of having voices, there was a lot of extra judiciary commentary about the Bruce Lerman rape trial last week. Do you think the presumption of innocence is dying these days? Look, uh, you know, you, you don't want to say anything that undermines the right to a fair trial. But having said that, we were in th this, I, this situation would never have happened in Canada. I'm a Canadian and British trained lawyer. And so before the actual trial, the supposed victim, the, the uh, complainant, gets invited to the press club. Um, she gets made a senior visiting fellow at the ANU Women's Global, and, and Julie Gillard gushes all over her. And, you know, Journalists win Logies taking sides. And most disgracefully of all, I have to say, uh, former Prime Minister Morrison gives an apology, I think was on the floor of Parliament. You know, this is, this is it. You're in the business in sort of elevating the credibility of one of the parties. This is in breach of the presumption of innocence. I don't know what these people think they're doing. But even in Canada, which is more left wing and more woke here by far, people wouldn't do that because they understand the presumption of innocence. And here it seems like it's being sold down the river. This guy, I, I don't know how they retry him in February. I know they're going to, but I just don't see how he gets a fair trial. Yeah, just, that's It a seems fair... to me that they yep. have so poisoned the water on this. It's disgraceful. It is. It is. The presumption of innocence should be sacrosanct. And it's alarming for you to say that we're worse than Canada. I know, I know you yeah, are Canadian. On but... the presumption of innocence. Yeah, well, it right, doesn't well. seem to exist here amongst a lot of a lot of the elite. Well, that's a depressing point to finish on. But James Allen, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's Queensland law academic James Allen. And just before I go, the former leftist president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, has reclaimed the presidency, beating the incumbent, the incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. Da Silva, a former factory worker who became president exactly 20 years ago, secured just a tick over 50% of the vote, around 50.8% thus far. Bolsonaro, who was elected in 2018, received 49.1%. This is a huge development for Brazil because Bolsonaro will not go quietly. And for Da Silva, it isn't an emphatic win. My bet is tensions will remain high and Bolsonaro supporters will be livid. For all that is said about Bolsonaro being a so-called populist, a term which is now flung around willy-nilly, he did represent the middle class, farmers and those people of faith. His government began curbing inflation, a global problem as we know, 
and it started to fall to around 8%. He also announced not too long ago a benefits program for 21 million families. The new president, who has communist roots, will have his work cut out for him. Industry is on its knees in Brazil. Manufacturing now accounts for just 10% of the country's GDP, down from 15% in 2004 and 26% in 1993. Under da Silva's previous administration, the state was drastically expanded as he capitalised on a commodities boom. But once that died off, economic growth slumped and poverty became widespread. With a 51-49 result, this is a country that is virtually split down the middle. I'll keep an eye on the reaction to this election result and keep you posted. In the same part of the world, America's midterm elections take place on November 8. The midterms are a halfway mark between presidential elections. By all accounts, the Democrats are toast. Their problem is a lame duck president who isn't in control nor shows any political ability whatsoever. Joe Biden must have left his brain behind when he said on the campaign trail that America has 54 states. The 79-year-old Biden was at an event in Pennsylvania when he was talking about the Republicans wanting to overturn Obamacare, an effort to socialise healthcare. He said, quote, They're still determined to eliminate the Affordable Care Act. And by the way, if they do, that means not a joke, everybody. That's why we defeated it in 2018 when they tried to do it. We went to 54 states. This is the latest in what is a clear cognitive deterioration of the President of the United States. He was pressed the other day by a reporter about plans he'll run again in 2024. He says he will. But then the reporter asked if Dr. Jill Biden was for it, to which he replied, quote, Dr. Biden thinks that uh, my wife thinks that uh, that I uh, that we're doing something very important, unquote. Might want to get a second opinion on that one, Joe. Honestly, what's the different? What's the definition of being over the hill? Surely Joe is it. A touchstone issue in these midterms has been the rights for states to pass laws limiting access to gender reassignment treatments for children. This includes sex change surgeries or puberty blockers for minors. Doctors claim performing such treatment on minors can be dangerous and can potentially cause irreversible changes. Joe Biden disagrees. The president said, quote, I don't think any state or anybody should have the right to do that as a moral question and as a legal question. I just think it's wrong, unquote. He can't be serious. Gender dysphoria is a genuine condition. But the sudden explosion of cases suggests most of them now are not very genuine. These are people seeking a surgical solution to a psychological problem, which the testimony of detransitioners says can cause more problems than it solves. People who are desperate enough to seek this kind of therapy or surgical solution deserve our sympathy. But encourage them, encouraging them to undergo irreversible surgery that will almost certainly not conform 
to their expectations is madness. It's bad enough for adults to do it, but for kids to be permitted to make these decisions is nothing short of child abuse. Well, that's all from me, Alan Jones. If you're watching, get well soon. But for this week at least, Alan will be recuperating at home and I'll be filling the 8pm slot. Thanks for watching. I'll see you again tomorrow at 8. Good night.